2: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Nobody in this band, it had not been their dream to do this. They thought they were just like going to be in some little club act as a hobby in New York. And that's just not what happened.
0: Welcome to a new episode of Chosen Family. I'm Trana Winter.
1: And I'm Thomas LeBlanc.
0: We are back from our little summer hiatus, just in time to celebrate four years of this podcast.
1: We've been married four years. That's (laughs) incredible. And I still have so much fun doing this show with you.
0: Me too. Of course, that
1: was Jake Shears you just heard. The frontman of the legendary Scissor Sisters.
0: For anyone who may not know, the Scissor Sisters were an electro-pop meets glam rock group formed in New York City, 2001. This is one of your biggest dream guest. Since we first started, you've always said that Jake is one of your dream guests.
1: What is the connection that you feel to him and his work? First of all, their 2010 album Night Work is one of my favorite albums of all time, all genres, bands, artists. It's a very sexual, thumping, electronic disco. It's very me. If you know me, (laughs) it's kind of a sleazy record. Jake is a bit sleazy. I'm a bit sleazy, so I love that record. It means so much to me. And then Jake, to me, is a trailblazer. And in recent years, we've seen more queer representation in music. And I've always been like... Jake did all of this 15 years ago. You know, there was a point where the Sister Sisters was the biggest band in the UK. And, you know, he played SNL in 2004 and he was out and he was very flamboyant. And I've always liked him. Of
0: course. I remember I discovered the Sister Sisters on this Kylie Minogue forum that I used to be on called Say Hey. And most of the people on that forum were from the UK. And the Sister Sisters definitely managed to achieve a certain amount of success in North America. But in the UK... They had the biggest selling album of 2004. They were the biggest sensation. I went and got their CD, fell in love with them. They did eventually come and tour in Canada. I saw them when they were touring their second album with their mega hit single, I Don't Feel Like Dancing, which I was obsessed with. But I also got to see them again a few years later when they were touring their last album, Magic Hour. And that was in a smaller space. It was at Olympia here in Montreal. And I was front row. And Jake was
1: electrifying. I I was at that show as well. Oh, my God. We didn't even know each other (laughs) back then. And we were in the same room. Jake was, I mean... He's hot. He's also just so hot on stage. (laughs) He was shirtless. And that's something I like about him is he's really playful with gender. He's playful with his masculinity, with his femme side. He can be very butch. And then the next minute he's very feminine. Um, He sings about sex and the darkness and, you know, hooking up. Um, You know, one of my favorite songs is Invisible Light. It's the last song. I think that's their best song. It's an epic disco number, 10 minutes.
0: It also features a narrative segment from Sir Ian McKellen. (laughs) Like, it doesn't get more gay and wild than that.
1: Jake was out, you know, there was never a moment when he had to come out because he was Outer than out, um, and in a way, he paved the way to some of the current, you know, male gay pop stars from Ali Alexander to Troy Sivan to obviously Lil Nas X. And I think Jake just doesn't get enough credit. and, I, and I'm happy to be the champion of that of that um, heritage.
0: When we had linda perry on the show we talked about how the early 2000s were such a heteronormative time culturally speaking we were bombarded with these pop images of hyper femininity or hyper masculinity there was nothing in between and then in 2004 when the scissors sisters came around it really felt like they were bringing back that 70s queerness to mainstream pop and of course they made such an impact within the queer community but in the culture at large. And I really do think that without the Scissor Sisters, there wouldn't have been a Gaga in 2008 and Katy Perry, you know, basically at the same time.
1: Jake came out with a very interesting memoir in 2018. It's called the Boys Keep Swinging. And he writes about his childhood growing up in Arizona and Washington state. And then he moved to New York city. And we, we read about that story and how he started the band ultimately in the early 2000s.
0: Jake has a new single out. It's called Do the Television. It's one of our favorite songs of the summer. It's a throwback to the early Scissor Sister days, and we got the chance to talk to Jake about this new music.
2: Dude, the television did was started about 10 years ago. Um, I started writing it with Anna and Baby Daddy. And, uh, you know, it was originally meant to be for Scissors. And we performed it at a, like, a secret show, just trying out new material and stuff. And I think we all realized that the song just had no chorus. Like, it didn't go anywhere. It was just very, just sort of sat there. But I always loved the feel of it. I loved the concept of it. And always just sort of kept it in a, you know, in a drawer for maybe the right day to pull it back out. And I took it to Los Angeles with um, this producer I've been working with. who's supremely talented. His name's Vaughn Oliver. And we wrote a chorus for it together that I just loved. that really lifted the song up and we, we re-recorded it from the ground up and, you know, it's just something I'm so pleased with and so excited to, you know, really fits in with all the stuff that I've been making. So it's it's an indicator in certain ways to what's about
1: to come. You're you're singing um, to the children on the song. You're telling the children <laughs> to do the television. Who are the children? Yes. Which generation is that? It's all, you know, the character, I write
2: in characters. <laughs> uh, I write in, there's, there's, it's not really me singing songs sometimes. It's like this imaginary, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's almost this cult leader. This song takes place (laughs) in a world where words have lost their meaning. Um, you know, television doesn't really mean anything anymore. It's just this, it's, it's, uh, in an old version of the song, there was a lyric that just said, it's just a word that we like. Um, so basically it's just turning this, this nonsense word into a dance. And, um, yeah, that's sort of, I don't know if that sounds really weird or what, but that's just kind of where it comes from in my
1: head. It's aligned with, I mean, most of the music that you've put out in the last 20 years, solo and with the the sisters. is Preparing for this, it dawned on me that you started the band 20 years ago this fall. So we're about to enter like the weeks when you first started to write the songs and put on some shows. And, you know, it was right after September 11th in New York City bring us back to little Jason 23 year old who who was he what was he dreaming of and how was how was it to be in New York City at the time he was a live wire um
2: he was a pretty wild child but uh you know I got to New York City when I was 20 almost 21 and you know I was a dreamer I I had Lots of, you know, fantasies and and dreams, you know, since I was a little kid, getting into songwriting and performing was almost an accident. But I was always somebody who really wanted a lot of attention. I needed attention. I needed to I had this strong need to be validated. And that's not a knock on myself. It's just you know, how my personality formed. I started go-go dancing uh, to get cash. And I would collect it every night and put it in a shoebox under my bed. I had all these shoeboxes just like full of cash <laughs> <laughs> that were that were under under my bed in this really scary uh sort of factory space I was living in. And yeah, and that's how it that's that's sort of how it started. And that's sort of how I became really comfortable performing in front of people. And I really loved dancing and I loved that attention. I loved that kind of you know, validation that it sort of fed me, and and for better or for worse, and but I, by I eventually grew kind of bored with it and wanted to take it a little bit further. And I was like, should I be a singing go 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 dancer? Is that what I do? Do I come out and like dance and then I like sing a song? Like I didn't really quite know what that was yet, but that was yeah, that was kind of like the beginning of of like my performance life.
0: It's so interesting to hear you say that it was almost an accident because you're such a natural-born performer. I've seen you live twice. They were two of, like, the most electrifying performances I've ever seen. You seem so connected to some sort of powerful energy, and I'm really curious about what you're channeling and what kind of zone you're trying to get into
2: when you're on stage. Um... I saw Dolly Parton perform uh, in Orlando at House of Blues in uh, somewhere around this. It was a little bit later, but I learned a lot from the first time I saw Dolly perform because what I felt like she did was she came out on stage and she really took the entire room in immediately. And you felt as an audience member that you were seen. And I always sort of took that, you know, into, into, into account when I go out on stage and going out and really taking the entire room in as far as what's whatever I'm channeling. It's just, to me, it feels like total freedom, you know, just being able to get out there. It's like, it's the one thing you can kind of do where if you did anywhere else other than that stage, like you would get arrested maybe or something, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like they would come cart you away. (laughs) And so it's this, uh, it's this spot where I can be out there and, you know, just feel that, that freedom to just be improvisational and,
1: and wild and like let myself really, go. I think um, I, I think it makes a lot of sense, but I think you're you're forgetting how hot you are on stage and I think a lot <laughs> of the a lot of the 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 gays and the women and the queers who come and see you really appreciate how you move and I think that's that's something that only can be channeled through years of nightlife. It was go-go dancing, it was going out partying, it was dancing to like yes. you know, long DJ sets and like the 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 scene from the early 2000s that really made you and shaped you it's almost like it's one of these like legendary iconic scenes that people should be talking about so do you think we're at a moment now where because we're missing so much and we see what we've lost in the in the in the last year and a half that we are able to kind of revisit those days and be like actually they really mattered that it really mattered to go out it really mattered to be in communion it really mattered to go to these club nights in Brooklyn in 2001 that you describe
2: yeah i mean that was one of the reasons why i wrote this book and and that's one of the reasons why there's so many names in it and You know, people, places, and things in it because I really wanted to make a document of this time. And I've always been fascinated by those scenes and those trajectories where you end up with all these. Uh, different people in one room or, you know, you know, who's in this hot tub. And there's just like, you know, those scenes where you're just like, I can't believe this person's here and this person's here. And But I mean, that's part of the magic of it. And so this book, you know, maybe not everybody knows exactly who a lot of these people are I'm talking about, but I really wanted to make a document of the time. And I feel like no one had quite... There's been a couple books about this period, but I just wanted to do that from my perspective.
0: Think of your favorite one-hit wonder.
1: Or that overpriced toy your parents would
0: never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon.
1: Now what if we could fix it?
2: I, bitch, I mean this rain. No cabs,
0: nowhere. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about um, the last album that you made um with the mm-hmm. Scissor mm-hmm. Sister mm-hmm. Sisters Magic mm-hmm. Hour, um, which is one of my favorites. Um, and it features the iconic let's have a kiki. Let's have a key. I wanna
2: have a kiki. Lock the doors. let's have a key. I'm
0: gonna let you it. You know, which has become such a part of queer culture and queer life and Um, I love it so much, but um, I read that you said at one point that that song sort of broke up the Scissor Sisters, and I'm just curious if that's true, and what's the story of of that song and and the effect that it had on the
2: band? Kiki was just kind of another sort of uh, accident, in a
1: way. Um, (laughs) It was... uh... Can you take us in the studio? Like, how did the song happen?
2: Yeah, Anna was obsessed with this song that sampled Margaret Thatcher. It was this <laughs> acid track that sampled Margaret Thatcher and cut up her voice to be talking about having an acid party.
1: Acid even more frequently. Party. Crucial party. Let's have a party. murder. Party.
2: So I I sort of took that idea because I knew Anna loved that so much. And and sort of was trying to come up with an idea about, you know, how we could sort of implement our own version of that. And that's how the idea for Let's Have a Kiki came up. And, you know, once we kind of had the concept, and Anna did that whole intro you know kind of in maybe two <laughs> takes just off the top of her head you know she's so brilliant in in that way and in those moments um and it's so funny that that intro is just that I f- mean that message she leaves is I icon- <laughs> every line is just
1: so iconic. NYPD shut down the party it's like yeah. so good Johnny Fargo like uh, it's the whole—it's it, am- I can't believe it's only two takes. It's so—I like, think it was two so takes. It wasn't written down. It was just what? like off the—it
2: t- was just off the top of her head.
0: And then to have that song wind up on Glee with Sarah Jessica Parker doing <laughs> the Anna opening
2: talk—it <laughs> was like, like meta. That's it bananas. Really meta. It got really, really meta. <laughs> and take a
0: train to the club. You're up, girl, because we are all coming over. I'll lock the door, lower the blinds, a light up the smoke machine, and put on your heels, cause I know exactly
2: what we need. Let's have a kiki.
0: I wanna have a kiki.
2: Lock the doors Tight, let's have a
0: kiki. Mother, I'm gonna let you
2: have You know, it. I I just felt we'd been doing it for ten years. We'd been touring really we'd been working so hard for ten years. And you know, either we were recording hardcore or we were touring. And, you know, nobody in this band, it had not been their dream to do this. They thought they were just, like, going to be in some little club act as a hobby in New York. And that's just not what happened. And, you know, I really felt a strong guilt, you know, like, in a certain way, like, I had hijacked everybody's lives, because it really was my dream to do this. And it really was, you know, it's, it's it's what I had dreamed about, you know, for a long, long time. And everybody had worked so hard. And, like, I just, at that point, after Kiki was, did what it was doing, I just don't know what else necessarily we had left to say at that point. And I also just felt like everybody kind of needed their lives back and to go make their own identities outside of this thing we all created together. Right.
0: I mean, I guess that sort of speaks to um, this recent interview that you did with The Guardian. And in that interview, you mentioned that you would like to be able to say sorry to your bandmates in The Scissor Sisters and that, you know, you had been, to a certain extent, your words, an absolute monster and an asshole and I'm just curious if you've been if you've had that moment to make the apology that you want to make, and what your relationship
2: is like with everyone now. I mean, that sounded so heavy when it was on the page. I was literally <laughs> like, kind of, like laughing when I when I said that. Oh my that. god! Um, listen, I mean, we all had our, you know, we all we all had our moments, and under under that kind of pressure and that kind of schedule. It was crazy i think we learned though over time i mean i can speak for i can speak for myself you know i really drove everybody really hard early on definitely and but then on the other hand i don't know i mean i said that in my book too i don't know if if i hadn't have done that i don't know if we would
1: have ended up necessarily where we ended up being no yeah and in a way i'm I, as a fan and it's very selfish of me but i'm thankful for that break because it allowed you to write the book and to come out with your own solo album in 2018 and what I've been really interested in kind of like in seeing you navigating these years was your own exploration of masculinity, what it meant to be a man, the kind of man you wanted to be. But what have you discovered in that process, like leaving the band, making the record, uh, writing the book about the kind of man you wanted to be um, and that you ultimately are have become?
2: I mean, it's it's always a process of becoming, I think. It's just I want to strive for integrity and and also just to work out all those things, you know, that 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 I've written about in the book and whatnot. There's still just stuff that's that's that's, you know, buried deep that um, I think it's important at this, you know, at the top of my 30s, I worked on a lot of stuff. And now at the top of my 40s, it's like I think it's very important to keep excavating and figuring out why you are the way you are. And, uh, you know, to just try to become a better, more thoughtful, more loving person. And, you know, that's the kind of man I want to become now. And I want to, I want, you know, I'm single and at 42 years old and I can't believe, I'm just like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) um, Are you scared of being
0: alone? And have you learned things about being alone (laughs) during the pandemic and going through that breakup? Like, are you getting better at being alone?
2: I've gotten better about being alone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, coming to new Orleans and, and basically leaving to a certain degree, New York and and LA, uh, was kind of an intense thing to do. And, um, it's sort of definitely, it's a little bit more isolating. Like I don't have as many, I've got some great friends here in new Orleans, but not, not a lot. And it's basically my place to come down and and be quieter and uh, get work done and kind of hang out with my dog and play video games and listen to music. And, you know, it's just sort of my quiet time. And I have really worked on on being better at being alone and being more satisfied with being alone. And like, that's definitely something that I've gotten better at. But it has been something that, you know, historically I've had a a tough time with. I'm a very, very social creature. I keep in touch with hundreds of people. Um, and it's, 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 it's intense. Like I really do. Uh, you know, my, my first partner used to call me Bill Clinton. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you just, you wouldn't believe that I do really keep, uh, to some degree, like all the people in my life. Um, and when there is sort of a falling out of touch for, for a minute or for a little while, I definitely work on bringing that right back around, picking up wherever we left off. I have an incredible friends and an incredible amount of friends that's, that's, you know, difficult sometimes to, to, to keep up with. And it, it, it takes, it takes time and energy, but I get so much out of it. And I feel so lucky to have so many amazing people in my life and I'm still, you know, I'm still meeting them. Uh, I'm still always meeting new people
1: um, that I, you know, that I care about very deeply. Do you do you see a connection there? I'm gonna bring you back to the more, the, the sexual energy and the sex positive, you know, part of your persona what, after all these years, like, do you have regrets about the sex you had, the sex you did not have, or the sex you could have had? And is that something that is still very important to you? And and I'm sure we've all had less, less sex in the pandemic that, that I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, (laughs) I have a, I have a much,
2: I definitely don't regret, regret anything I mean I think there have been points in my life where I've been like kind of searching for intimacy with other people where I've kind of been like feeling you know I've sort of had this hole that I'm trying to like that only I can really fill myself that like uh, that all sounds very dirty
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of Um, gay men men can relate to that
2: (laughs) yeah where I've where I've really been you know and it's not even through sex it's just like really trying to search for connection um, I have a much harder time with casual sex these days, and I I don't have much of it. Um, I'm terrible at the hookup apps. I'm just really bad at them. I try, I'm i always trying to, like, have my friends, like, help me and be like, what do I do? What am I supposed to say here? Or people, you know, I was, like, somewhere stopping through for a night, driving. I was driving to my parents, and, like, I I was on one of them, and, like, I got a message back. I sent my picture to somebody, a couple pictures, and they wrote back, you know, you fucking creep. These are Jake Shears' pictures. And, like, <laughs> and blocks me. <laughs> Blocked me. Yeah. Didn't even give me a chance to be like, no, wait, wait. wait. Uh, so I don't have the best best luck with that, nor do I necessarily want the best luck with that. But I don't regret you know, I don't regret at all, like, you know, the the life I've led, but it's definitely changed and my attitudes have really sort of my internal attitudes and how I see things have changed with myself.
1: You know, you, we, we, we kind of talked about being a friend and the kind of friend that you are. And in the book, your French with Mary is, you know, fundamental in your story, but I think you also kind of, um write about her in such a beautiful way so just to give an idea so mary first of all is a song that people might know from the first album uh of the sisters and then she was your friend you met in arizona you when you moved to washington state she came and visit you were really close um, yeah, we met on a phone line we met on like this party chat line wow that's it I read that i was i wanted to bring it up because i know you used to call phone lines as a kid yeah, uh, yeah. Uh. I was yeah. Are you there too? Were you were
2: you as well? Well, not really
0: party lines, but when I was like 12, 13, me and my best friend used to make fake <laughs> profiles on the phone dating services. So we'd pretend to be these like 18-year-old girls and we'd be talking to these guys on the on the phone dating
2: service. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, definitely a a, a different um a different yeah, vibe, a different, for sure. A different vibe, a different world. But we met, uh, you know, we met on a phone line when I was uh, fifteen. She was twenty-one, and we just had a very deep bond, and were, um, you know, friends for for well over a decade. She was somebody who had a lot of health problems. She was, you know, she was obese, very obese. And that was, I really gained a perspective, you know, sort of growing up with her at that time about, you know, her difficulties, how horrible people can be and how horrible people can treat each other. And, uh, you know, we just always had this, I think we both sort of had our, you know, our 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 stuff that we carried, you know, each different, you know, different things, but, uh, we really sort of bonded and we were just two completely different people. I mean, we really were like a yin and yang, you know, we had different tastes in certain ways and, you know, uh, but she was an amazing person and, and sadly, you know, she passed away. Um, we, I wrote this song for her. We'd gotten in a fight. I'd wrote a song for her. I mean, this story is so crazy. I wrote a song for her, you know, called Mary. And basically it was a song saying, you know, don't ever say that I'm not your friend, uh, you know, cause I'm always going to be your friend. And, you know, we'd made a, a, a deal that if that song ever made any money, I was going to get her gastric bypass surgery, which is something that she'd always wanted and it did make money and we did get her the surgery and you know, she, she, she passed away like two days later. Oh God. Yeah, I still don't know, you know, it's in my, in my book I write, like I don't even know what to say about it. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's something that's still, you know, I miss her so much. Um, so I'm very, you know, thankful for what she brought to my life and I'm thankful for her friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's a sad, it's a it is sad a really sad tale. story,
0: but it, in a way it sort of ties everything together. Like that idea that you're saying about just the unpredictability of life and connection and where things lead. And, you know, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about even becoming a performer accidentally almost. And then with the Scissor Sisters becoming one of the biggest bands in pop ever, you know, for those few years. And to me, there would not be, like, a Lady Gaga or Katy Perry if it wasn't for the Scissor Sisters and the ground that you laid bringing back this loud, beautiful queerness to an industry that had become, like, so heteronormative in the early 2000s. And I'm curious if you ever think about what you want the legacy of the Scissor Sisters to be.
2: Um... You know, I, I want the legacy to be, you know, I hope these songs, you know, will live on and still bring people joy. And I hope younger people and younger queer people find, you know, these songs and uh, enjoy them as well. I really, it was, you know, it was a bumpy road at times being out. And, and doing this and, and finding success in doing this and being out at the same time, there was a lot, there were a lot of hoops to jump through and um, a lot of resistance in so many ways. Um, and I just really wanted it to be easier for those. I kept, I always just told myself, this is gonna make it easier for the next people coming down this road. What a wonderful interview. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate such a thoughtful interview. Thank you so much. Like,
1: truly. Thank you so much. Yeah.
0: Jake Shears. Do yourself a favor and stream his new single, Do the Television. And you should also check out his amazing collaborations
1: with Annie and Boys Noise. While we expect his upcoming album, you can listen to his 2018 solo eponymous debut. His memoir, Boys Keep Swinging, is available wherever good books are sold. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? What are you obsessed with?
0: So my obsession this week is a bit of a throwback. It's the Australian sitcom Kath and Kim. <laughs> yes. Which is on Netflix. Um, I actually watched it at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, it originally came out in 2002 and was a really big hit in Australia and other places in the world, never really in North America. What is what is it about? So Kath and Kim was created and is played by um, Gina Riley and Jane Turner, two brilliant comedians, their mom and daughter. It's in the suburbs of Melbourne, and they spend a lot of time at the mall. They're very tacky, very self-involved. The daughter in particular is a complete narcissist. You've got to slow down, I have to say. You look 100 at the moment. No, Kim. I actually look very good for my age. You should see the looks I get. Bacurk. What? Bacurk, Mum. You're chooky. What do you mean, Chucky Kid? I'm not criticizing you, Mom. I'm just saying you look bad. But the humor of the show is really in all of the small little details. Um, So, for example, Kath, the mom, um, it's her wedding day, and her wedding shoes are very slippery so she puts little velcro pads on the bottom and you just there's there's a scene where she's in her hotel room and you just hear the shoes on the carpet and the velcro lifting (laughs) up and off just all these little things they have so many hilarious catchphrases like they refer to hot guys as like a great hunk of spunk now i don't know maybe marriage isn't for me oh don't be stupid kim
1: of course marriage is for you it's the normal thing to do Maybe I want to be different, explore things. Don't go all weird on me, Kim.
0: It's just so outrageous. And it sort of reminds me of the humor of Absolutely Fabulous and even Elements of the Comeback with Lisa Kudrow, just these comedies that are all about the small details of these characters, their catchphrases, their tics. And I just love this idea of, like, the Australian suburbs. (laughs) <laughs> why because it's so funny and just it's not that wildly different from the suburbs here but there's something about that australian accent that everyone's been making fun of on social media lately especially i think it all kind of started Ooh, nicole with kidman. nicole kidman and the way she says no <laughs> which is like more like noer <laughs> And I just there's there the world of these characters is so ridiculous, but I just love spending time with them. There's nothing redeeming about these characters. They're not aspirational. They're pretty terrible people. But spending time with them feels good. I like that. What are you obsessed with?
1: The end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm, uh, you know, as all of us, I think we're all watching the climate crisis unravel, feeling very powerless. Um, some of us are joking about it. Some of us are in denial. Some of us are angry, afraid. Some of us are in a bunker. <laughs> <laughs> Billionaires are flying to space. <laughs> you know, like all of us are coping in different ways. Um, but I'm, you know, I recently unraveled on Instagram. You, know, you had a you had a very public <laughs> meltdown <laughs> and you were specifically
0: antagonizing people having children yes. during this time. Not
1: only straights, also the queers. No, I know all people, queers, having, all people children. having children. All people having children. I feel personally because people close to me in my life are expecting and. It's very self-centered, but I don't know how to deal with... I don't know how... Should I lie to them? Should I tell them they're going to have a future? I don't know how to cope with this. So I need emotional support because we know this is going to happen. We see the signs. We see the fires. We see... We feel it. And some people were really privileged to be in Montreal, but some people are going through like really, really, really bad circumstances right now. But I found this one climate scientist, Kimberly... Nicholas. She is from California. She teaches at a university in in Sweden. She released a book last spring called Under the Sky We Make, which is basically a guide to cope with what we know is happening. You know, the planet is warming, the climate is getting crazier, and as much as I love a good, you know, doom scrolling sesh, you know, on Instagram, it doesn't serve any purpose. Um, and to to me that a climate scientist is able to do her work, which is way more important than my work, <laughs> <laughs> um, and still be able to function and not be overwhelmed by mm. the negative feelings. And I think what is really healthy through all of this breakdown for me was that, Speaking about my anxiety with the climate crisis, a lot of people responded. A lot of people were like, I am terrified. I don't know what to do. And I think that is the next step. I think it's a global therapy that we need to do. We need to do like group therapy, talk about it, talk about the anxiety, how we're going to cope through this and cope with this. And, you know, lots of queers are anxious. So we can kind of really acknowledge this work. And it's the work that we'll have to do over the next uh, couple of years. So thank you, Kimberly Nicholas. Oh my God, I miss doing the credits. <laughs> well, get ready. Chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas LeBlanc. And me, Trana Winter. Aiden McMahon edits and mixes the show. Natalia Dongo is our contributing producer. Judy Zigu is our digital producer. Tina Verma is our senior producer. And Arif Narani is the executive producer of CBC Podcasts. Chosen
0: Family's music
1: is by The Lost Boys. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast
0: originally developed in association with Fi Studio. We are recording this season at Tomei Park Studio.
1: We are in the middle of Leo season, everyone. So you have to watch our episode of Lucky Stars, an Astro web series that we do with Extra Magazine. It's on their YouTube page. We roast your favorite Leos. That one was a lot of fun.
0: Madonna and J-Lo Don't miss out
1: <laughs> We also have a column Every second week uh, That's called That's the way it is Where we dissect Pop culture Talk about the Spice Girls And reality shows And friends And all the all the fun stuff
0: You can listen To Chosen Family Wherever you get Your podcasts Just like you're doing Right now Take care Bye bye <laughs> We never say bye bye I know. We never say like goodbye We never can say goodbye <laughs> Hit it Gloria Gaynor
1: <laughs> I never can say goodbye No
0: That's our signature. We never Never, say goodbye.
1: That's it. That's a really good one. We never can say goodbye. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) That's it.
0: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.